Amen. Well, tonight we're talking about courage, and one of the songs we just sang was that we have no fear because the God of angel armies is with us. As we learned about five weeks ago, that is a unique word introduced to us in the book of Samuel, that God is the angel of hosts, the angel of armies, and that he fights for us, and that one of the reasons we can be courageous and not face fear or be overwhelmed by fear is that we have the God of armies on our side. So today we're going to continue on in chapter 3 of Samuel, but in order to do that, we're going to have to catch up to what happened last week. So if you're with us last week, a quick two-minute overview. If you weren't with us, a quick two-minute overview. So here's where we were last week. So God spoke to Samuel, and in that verse, um, we discovered that Samuel was in a different place than Eli. So it says that Samuel went and lay down in his place, And I propose to you that he was on a cot in the holy place, curtain here to the holy of holy place, and that God has been speaking with a human voice from the ark, that he each time thinks it's Eli and runs over to Eli's place, and Eli's like, it's not me, one, two, third time, Eli discerns that this is God speaking, and now... As he comes back to what I think is the holy place, and God's speaking from between the the two cherubim and the ark, he says, the Lord then came, so not just speaking now, the Lord came, and the Lord stood and called as other times. And we looked at this idea that the angel of the Lord is Jesus in the Old Testament, and the word of the Lord is Jesus in the Old Testament. Because words don't stand. There's someone standing here in the holy place with Samuel. And I believe it's a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. The word of the Lord. So here it is. The, the Lord came and the Lord stood and the Lord called. Just like the other time saying, Samuel, Samuel. Whenever you see a word duplicated like that in the Bible, it's for emotion. When Absalom dies in Second Samuel, you hear Sam, David drop to his knees and say, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Or Jesus turns to Judas, Judas, Judas. Samuel, Samuel. So it's a very emotional, invitational, heart-speaking kind of way when you repeat somebody's name twice. And Samuel answered and said, Speak, for your servant hears. And last week we looked at the word hears is the word shema. As in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6, Shema O Israel, and to hear is to hear and act. But I want to emphasize tonight not the word hear, but the word your servant. Because I think part of what we're going to discover today is something that we would say, I'm here to serve God. But when you look at what you really wrestle with in your heart, the circumstances you don't like, the things God's not doing that seem <laughs> be a whole lot better planned than His plan, Sometimes I think and believe and act like God's here to serve me, not I'm here to serve God. So what would it look like if we had the courage to say, God, I'm here to serve you regardless of what you ask? Because what God is going to ask of Samuel is going to be hard. He has a message for Samuel that is going to be incredible, bad news, difficult news, hard to deliver news. Now, have you ever had to deliver hard news? I'm sure in a management situation you have, in a tough marriage conversation you have, maybe with, with your kids you have. I remember uh, last place I was working, 
the senior pastor and I were having some disagreements, and so we were trying to talk about how the whole culture could be better for everyone to work in. So I was trying to own some of the things that I was contributing to that were the problem, and I was getting some observations of things that I thought that um, maybe he could do that would help out, and that wasn't necessarily going over real well. Um, but to his credit, he said, you know what? I don't think you're right. I don't think what you've said is true, but I'm willing to have a meeting with our, our senior staff to talk about it. And I'm like, oh, I don't really want to be here, but you know what? I felt like God was prompting me. I wanted to work there long term, and I wanted to make the environment healthy. So everyone on that management team had triangulated and told me their concerns, which were identical to mine, but none of them had had the guts to talk one-on-one. And so I started the meeting. I said, listen, we're not here to blame anybody. We all want to work in a place that really has, is healthy. And I want to tell you, here's some things I think I've been doing that have been unhealthy that I want to own. Here's some things I shared with our senior pastor that I felt like he could own and then all of us could own. Does anyone else have any um, feelings about this or thoughts on this that we could just all make it a better place? Crickets. <laughs> Crickets! I'm like, I'm looking them in the eye like, I talked to you an hour ago and you said you were going to talk about this. You said that it, we're not trying to blame... It. Blank stairs, blank stairs, blank stairs. I was left out to dry, my friends. And I thought to myself, I will never do this again, right? It's the kind of conversation Samuel's going to have to have. I remember a couple years ago, I interviewed uh, Rich. He was the CEO of EW Scripts here in town. And he shared that when their company moved to being more of a digital platform, they had to make some very tough decisions for the future of the company. In order to do that kind of courageous decision for the future of the company, they had to do a, a major reshaping, reorganization, and a layoff of folks that were primarily focused on the printing side of the business. And he told an amazing story that he felt like as a Christian, though he'd made this tough, courageous decision, he needed to be there to take the brunt of the anger. Picket signs everywhere, kind of to sneak around that, you know, with some danger and make his way in. And he said, I stayed there all day and just delivered the news. Any family, any employee who wanted to yell at me, scream at me, be mad at me, I felt like it was my role, because I felt like this was the direction we needed to go, but also be the one that took the brunt of it. I was really impressed with that. That he was courageous enough to try and do a tough decision, a courageous decision for the company, but also to be able to step into the difficult conversations and be willing to take the flack when he could have sent many other people in the organization. Well, what is God going to tell Samuel that's going to require so much courage for him to deliver? Well, that's our key verse for today. Our key verse, actually, it's a really interesting word that's used here in the passage that we're going to dig into today. But the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm going to do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hear it, Shema it, it, they're going to tingle. Tingle? Yes. Everyone who hears what I'm about to tell you, it's going to be tingling ear time. Well, what does that mean? What does tingling ears mean? I hope by the end of today, you will not only know what it meant for Samuel, but also means for you and I, that God sometimes removes his hand of protection. And those who hear what he's going to do, my goodness, it's going to reverberate through the nation. We're going to look at three ways to be courageous as we hear. And I'm hoping it's going to give you the courage to hear truth about yourself. I'm hoping it's going to give you the courage to speak truth with grace and truth to those around you. And also have the courage to look at, are you really fearing God these days? Or are you fearing some idol? that's take control of your life and that the fear of God is, it's in there, but it's, a, it's subordinated to this other voice in your life. All right, so let's look at the first one. What does it mean to hear with ears that tingle, don't jingle? 
And if you think about a lot of sermons, or you think about uh, interacting with a sermon, you know, oftentimes, you know, jingle bells, it's like, you know, I like the sermon, Chad had a good point, I like what Drew said, you know, just kind of neat little thing. This is, this is a sound, right, of a jingle. The sound used here of a tingle comes from a late Middle English word of tinkle, which is a loud reverberation. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it, shmaz it, shma, will tingle. In that day, when what I'm about to tell you comes forth, I'm going to perform this against Eli, the high priest, and his two corrupt sons, Hopni and Phinehas, all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. So what's going on here is that he says, I'm going to deliver a message. And it's a message of judgment, a removing of my protection, and it's against Eli the high priest. It's against the, the ark, the tabernacle, all of that. And everyone who hears it, their ears are going to tinkle. Tingle, which comes from tinkle, which means a loud reverberation. We think a ringing of your ears. So if you think about this idea, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am going to take the high priest the most spiritual man who's not acting very spiritual, and I'm going to allow judgment to come upon him. And it's going to reverberate through the nation that if I can remove my hand of protection from him, I can remove my hand of protection from anyone. And it's going to reverberate because it's not just him. It's going to be Hopney and Phineas and Eli. And it's going to ricochet through. You're not going to believe that I'm going to allow to happen what's about to happen. The ark, the symbol of my presence, I'm going to allow it to be captured. My people are going to go into battle, and they're going to go into battle with the ark, thinking because they have the ark, I have to give them victory. But they're not being faithful. They're trying to use me for their own victory. My people are going to be defeated in battle, and Eli, and Phineas and Hopney are going to have the priesthood removed from their family line forever. And here's 10-year-old Samuel. And God's going to tell him to go and deliver that message to his mentor, the Billy Graham of the day, in the sense of being a high priest. Can you imagine how hard that would be if you're Samuel? Uh, Eli guy who's my father figure, my spiritual figure. God's got something he wanted me to tell you, and it's going to make you and everyone else's ears tingle. How's he going to do that? What's going to motivate him to do that? It really comes down to the fear of God. Do we fear people more than we fear God? Do we fear circumstances more than we fear God? The fear of God is what motivates us. I've been amazed the last couple of years just how much fear I've, I've found in myself and the circumstances I've been in. just been amazed. I wouldn't have guessed that fear was something that I wrestled with so much. But my goodness, have I found that that's true in trying to manage things and trying to keep things afloat. I've just been amazed at the amount of fear of uncertainty, fear and anxiety that I've experienced. And what I realize is trying to do it all, oftentimes, I come back to saying, oh my goodness, I've got the fear of God. And the fear of God is, Chad, when you try and play the role of uh, of trying to control circumstances beyond your control, you're trying to put yourself in my place and you're going to wear yourself out. And a couple of my idols are freedom. I realize one of my recent idols is progress. I like to make progress. 
And sometimes the circumstances I'm in, there can't be any progress right now. And that puts a level of anxiety in me. But the fear of God, a definition for the fear of God that's going to motivate Samuel here, is a shuddering awareness of what my life would be like if I wasn't close to God. I'd rather be in bad circumstances with God. I'd rather say a tough message, but I'm with God, than to have easy circumstances or easy conversation or everyone's approval. In fact, there's an old story. It's called The the Princess and the Goblins. You've ever heard it before, but this little girl is just terrified every night because of the goblins who live underneath and live around. So her fairy godmother comes to her and says, next time you're scared, I want to give you this ring. And I've embedded in this ring a magic yarn. And that magic yarn will lead you to me. So next time she's getting scared, she can see the darkness all around her. She can feel the goblins coming all around her. And so she pushes the ring and this this string appears that she knows will lead to her fairy godmother. So she starts following the string, but it doesn't lead toward the light. It leads deeper into the darkness. There's goblins all over the place. There's spooky trees all over the place. And in that moment, she's got a decision to make. Do I fear the circumstances around me? Yes. But I'm more going to fear or trust or have awe in my grandmother that I know I can trust that if I keep walking through the darkness, this will lead me to the person who can give me hope and strength. And sure enough, she follows that. And that's what the fear of God is. It's saying, I so want to be close to God. I so want to trust God that I'm going to, even with the other voices of fear around me, I'm going to follow God's leading in this circumstance. Because I want to be close to God because I am fearful of what happens in my heart and my actions when I'm not close to God. I can talk myself into anything. Do your ears tingle? That if you're not close to God, regardless of the other circumstances, you're aware of how wayward you could be. And has God ever removed his hand of protection where you're like, oh my goodness, I've been in those phases, I've been in those moments in my life, I do not want to go back there. The second way that we need to hear, kind of develops the story, we get a little more of the detail that I just alluded to, is to hear with ears that know and act but don't ignore Remember, Shema in Hebrew is to hear and act. The two things are combined. There isn't a separate word. And so God here is kind of confronting this idea. Here's somebody who's heard but hasn't acted. That's not how it works. And look what he says. For I told him, this is now God or Jesus, the Theophanies, talking to Samuel about Eli. For I have told him that I'm going to judge his house forever. So this isn't like the first warning. It's been a reoccurring warning. You gotta stop this, you gotta stop this, you gotta stop this, stop ignoring me, stop ignoring me, stop going the wrong way, stop leading people astray, stop, stop, stop. So I've told him. Now this isn't recorded in 1 Samuel, so this is alluding to something Samuel didn't write down in chapter 1 and 2. But clearly God has been speaking regularly to Eli about this issue. I have told him that I'm going to judge his house forever for the iniquity, and he says it again, which he knows. I'm holding him accountable to that which he knows. If you remember when Drew spoke a couple weeks ago, Drew alluded to the fact that he turns to his son, he knows everything they're doing that's wrong, and it's like, hey, guys, it's not a good report. Well, yeah, but it's worse than that. They're stealing from the church treasuries, they're they're, they're sleeping with the female worshipers. He knows And he knows that it's his responsibility to do something about it, and he's ignoring it. He has ears that know stuff, but they don't act on stuff. They're ignoring those things. 
And here comes the main thing. Because his sons made themselves vile. What is a big word? What does that mean? It's a word we don't even use very often. Vile. That tastes vile. That looks vile. No, I don't even use that word. The word vile literally means to be tarnished. So if you think about polishing some silver to give it its glory or shine back, when it gets tarnished, it becomes vile. It's lost its glory. Phineas and Hopney have tarnished the glory of God that was given to them. They have tarnished the glory of the worship of God because of what they have done. They have tarnished God's good name. They have tarnished the name of the priesthood. They have allowed tarnish to depolish or deglorify everything God has in place. And that's what he's confronting them with. They've turned themselves into dragons. They've turned themselves into serpents. I don't know if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene where Eustace has just started to turn himself vile. And he turns from a boy and slowly transforms into a serpent and a dragon. And he realizes, how have I gotten to this place? I knew I shouldn't have done it. God told me not to do it. And I've transformed. I've become something different now. And he's trying to push off the scales. And the scales will fall off, but he's still a dragon. And Aslan shows up with his big claws. And he says, do you want to be free and do you want to be changed? Big old claws come out. And Eustace is like, ah, what are you going to do? I'm going to rescue you from what you've become. Will you give me permission? I don't know. Eventually Eustace surrenders because he couldn't make himself better. And Aslan says, you can't clean off your scales. Only I can free you from it. Will you surrender? And he does. And he takes those claws and he claws down the front and rips through that dragon that he's become and peels it back and out steps the former glory of Eustace as a son of God. And that's the message of the gospel. In fact, it's why we do what we do here at Horizon. It's not you try and clean off your scales because I made a few mistakes. It's, oh God, I have become vile. I have tarnished your image. I've tarnished myself. I've tarnished your work. I've tarnished your calling in my life. And I cannot clean up myself. And it might hurt, but God, I'm going to allow you the claws of your Holy Spirit to dig into me and free me to become a new creature in Christ. And we say as a church, you know, we're here to comfortably connect people to God. But just because we're trying to create comfortable environments doesn't mean that when you get connected to God, doesn't mean it's always comfortable to feel his conviction. But, oh, it's so much better once you're free. I talked to someone recently who's coming to the church right before a service recently. They said, could I talk to you? And so we went up to a private room and they said, I just, I just got caught this week engaging in pornography. He was just so broken in tears. We talked together for about 15, 20 minutes. And I could just see that God was taking his Holy Spirit's finger and cutting through the shame, cutting through the guilt, using appropriate guilt to lead to godly sorrow. I could just feel the freedom occurring as we prayed together. And as he was asking God for help in this, this real circumstance, and this real challenge, this real temptation he had. That's why we do what we do. We, we don't just want you to know stuff about Samuel. We want you to see how you and I have become Hopney and Phineas and how we need God to transform us. So I got a text about two weeks ago 
student in our student ministry said, hey, Chad, you've had some great conversations with me. You've helped me in my spiritual journey with lots of good conversations over the years. I got a friend of mine whose son committed suicide. Would you be willing to meet with her? I said, sure. It doesn't come to our church. I texted. They met me actually here on a Saturday around 2, 2.30, and we just had an hour and a half conversation about processing the evil of the world, processing what suicide means and doesn't mean, And I could feel her longing for truth and longing not to be bitter and longing to know how to process this. And just in that hour and a half conversation, I could just feel Aslan's finger pulling off, in this case, shame, fear, and anger. And it's going to be a a, a long journey. But God wants to deliver us from the ways we've lost track of who we were designed to be to reflect the glory of God. So our second aspect is, one, to have ears that know but don't ignore. But then he goes on, he says, there's another piece of this, though. What's the other piece? You're not restraining rebellion, he says. It's not just that you're ignoring what I've said. You're not restraining the rebellion around you. You refuse to restrain the rebellion you know about. And he, Eli, did not restrain them. And therefore, since I told him, since he knows, since he didn't restrain them, therefore... I have sworn to the house of Eli that this... So he's already told him again. He mentions again. I've sworn this to Eli that the iniquity, the sin of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. And look at this word. Forever. Oh. Now that's a terrible, terrible word. Listen. God wants us to operate in grace. God, man, I don't, I, I mess up, I screw up. When I do hear things from you, I agree with you. And, and look what 1 John 1, 9 says. If you confess your sins, the one you know about, he will forgive you those sins. Oh, wow. And cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's so many things that you and I are doing. Sins of omission and commission. And what does that mean? Sins like I'm doing something wrong and sometimes I'm omitting to do something's right. That's the difference. There are so many ways. If God fully revealed how out of whack we are, we'd be overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Which is why the grace of Jesus is that he forgives all past, present, future sins. However, the way you walk as a Christian is when God convicts you of something, you confess, agree with him, like Eli didn't, and he forgives you that sin, but also cleanses you from all the other things he hasn't yet revealed to you. That's all forgiven as far as you get into heaven, but your positional way of walking with God is how you do that. And he says, you're no longer operating in grace. And then you start operating in mercy. And that's where like, you're not really listening to God, but he's, he's, still, he's still protecting you. But come on now, come on now. Eventually God will say, I'm going to remove my hand of protection. You're still a Christian, but I'm going to give you over to the consequences. And that's what happened here with Eli. And that's why we're back to our key verse. He's saying here, the reason things are going to tingle, it's not just in Israel, but forever the family line of Eli has been known as the priestly household there's never ever 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 going to be an Eli family member in the priesthood again because you just kept ignoring my leading you just kept rebelling against me you just kept ignoring you just kept refusing to restrain Now, there's a place for us as teachers and as parents to rebuke, to admonish, and to challenge. That's on the truth side. But there's also a grace side, friends. 
And here's the grace side. You can beat yourself up trying to be the best parent and the perfect parent and the perfect employer and the perfect, perfect, perfect. You can't be perfect. Don't put yourself in the place of God. Think of it this way. As I shared in our family night with a lot of parents who came in here with a lot of burdens several weeks ago. God is the perfect parent. And 100%, 100% of his kids rebelled. So if your kids are rebelling, doesn't mean you don't admonish, doesn't mean you don't rebuke. But at the end of the day, it's not that if you had just done one more thing, they might have done it right. Every human being has a human heart that's broken and rebellious. And so don't take upon yourself the, the guilt of needing to, you know, if only I'd done one more thing right, my, my kids would have turned out differently. Instead, say, God, when I see things, I'm trying to as kindly, grace and truth, bring it to bear. But I also need to recognize that these are human beings with their own desire. Hotney and Phineas had to be held account. As the high priest, he should have restrained it. That was his job. But as a parent, often we'll have kids who go in directions they shouldn't go. And we still admonish, we still love. But we also realize that even if I had been a perfect parent, even God was, and his kids all rebelled. All right, third. The third way we can hear. The third way we hear that he mentions here in this passage is to hear with, with, with ears that unveil versus hide the truth. Now, let me set the stage a little bit, because I'm going to do a little modification of what I've been telling you for several weeks. I wanted to wait until this week to do this. And so I've been showing you what the tabernacle looks like, and that's very true. All the different aspects of the tabernacle with the holy place and all that. However, what I mentioned in the first week is that the tabernacle has been here 300 years. And it's very possible that over that 300 years, they've modified from a temporary structure with curtains to a permanent structure. And there's been some hints in the text that I've kind of ignored up to this point to show you. Here's a couple of them. So Samuel lay down right after this message from God until morning and opened the doors of the house of God. Now, that's unusual. If this was all made out of tent and fabric, it wouldn't have a door. So it seems to imply that 300 years in Shiloh, the tabernacle has been upgraded from a temporary framework to a permanent framework. There's another little hint of that I didn't mention a few weeks ago, and that's now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat at the doorpost of the tabernacle. So let me show you what that doorpost could have looked like. They did some archaeological finds, and here's two kind of choices of what it might have looked like during that day. This one is a stone stool. So this might be where Eli was sitting every day when he was judging and preparing to go in. But this is a little more permanent. But notice it says that in that passage earlier, it's by the doorpost, in which case the post is made as something a little bit more concrete. Another thing the stool could have looked like was another one from that time period was one made out of wood. But either way, it's saying that there are door posts which seem like a more permanent structure. So the layout is the same of the tabernacle I've described to you the last couple of weeks. But here's an actual uh, tabernacle framework that's more permanent in the Mishkan Shiloh synagogue. So it's laid out the same way, but see how much more permanent that is? It actually has door posts. It actually has actual facilities. This might have been more like what was in Shiloh after the 300 years of worship occurring there which is why he could sit at a door post. It's why Samuel had to open the door to go out. It was a little bit more permanent structure. So with that in mind, as you're picturing that, Samuel has just heard the message from God. He's just opened the doors to the house of the Lord. And he's now going to have to go and talk to Eli. And the question is, is Eli going to have ears that hide the truth? I can't hear that. I don't want to hear that. Or is he going to have ears that unveil, are open 
to the truth. Here's what happens. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. It's morning time. He answered, here I am. He said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide. Don't veil this. Don't hold it back. Don't hide it from me. God, do so to you and more also. And he must know it's bad news, right? You wouldn't say this if you didn't know it's good news. So you better tell me the truth. Otherwise, God, do unto you what he said he was going to do unto me. He says it again. If you hide anything from me of all the things he says to you, that's the consequence. It's going to happen. So Samuel told him everything. That's a tough conversation. And he hid nothing. There's the word hid again. Hid, hid, hid. Hid nothing from him. Now, as hard as we've been on Eli, you've got to give him some credit here. It took him three times before he perceived it was the Lord, as we looked at last week. But once he recognized God is speaking again, though a word of the Lord is rare in those days, he's like, Samuel... I know God spoke to you last night. I want to know what he's saying. Despite the fact that he hasn't been giving in to God's uh, statement so far, despite that God has warned him, so he clearly knew it was bad news, he says, don't hide, don't hide, don't hide, don't hide. This is the kind of ears we need. God, don't hide the truth. I want to hear the truth about myself. Where am I making mistakes? Where do I need to change? What's the truth about me? And, and here's why the fear of God and grace of God is the secret to do this. If you find your identity, for example... In I always do a good job all the time. Really? All the time? It's going to be very hard for you to hear feedback that you don't do the best all the time. But if you find your identity in the grace of God, boy, in Christ I am perfect. And I try to do a good job as a spouse. I try to do a good job as a parent. I try to do a good job as an as a employee, as an employer. When somebody brings feedback to me, that is inconsistent with me thinking I'm basically a good person, I'm going to reject that if that's my identity. But if instead I go, no, no, my real identity is God loved me and died for me for a whole bunch of stuff, and I won't be surprised if one of the things being shared with me right now is one of those things that he had to die for. I was selfish. I was impatient. I, I need to apologize. Do you see how your idol determines your ability to feed, get feedback? And if you struggle with getting feedback from other people, especially those closest to you, it's usually because you're hiding the truth because you found your identity in, in your activity, in your works, not in Christ. And you've got to put on the identity of Christ in those situations and say, listen, this might be hard to hear, but I'm secure in Christ. I'm fully loved. I'm fully appreciated. I'm fully valuable because of what Christ did for me. That's my identity. So I'm now open for feedback. So you don't have to hide. Please tell me the truth. I'm open. I'm open to other areas of my life that I think this is just me, but I'm open if you think I could grow in this area. That's why the grace of God is such the secret to being teachable and being open and being able to apologize and being able to accept truth. You don't have to hide because everything's already been covered in the grace of God. So you're more open about your, your, your own personal laundry with God. You're more open to feedback. So then here's a question. Then why don't you come across very many people, let alone Christians, who are acting that way? Because most Christians have no idea, no idea, how to put the grace of God and the identity of God in action in their life. They just don't. 
They prayed a prayer to get them to heaven, but they have no idea how to incorporate that into relationships, into everyday living. And so instead, you do hide behind your idols. You hide behind your real identities. You hide and you can't accept feedback. So to Eli's credit here, I want to hear the truth. I have not been shemahing very well, but I want to hear the truth. Don't hide anything from me. In fact, even the last line here, I left off here. He says, and he said, it is the Lord. Man, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Man, you talk about an incredible statement right there. I'm willing to do whatever God seems is right. You see his heart starting to change here. Now, where are you going to get the courage to incorporate the grace of God into your life? Well, we're back to Jesus. Why do you think Jesus is in this chapter? Because that's the secret to being able to hear truth about yourself you don't want to hear is because you recognize who Jesus is. Look at the next verse. So Samuel grew, and as he grew, the Lord was with him. He knew God was with me. Hey, whatever I hear, whatever's going on, God's with me. That's my identity. And God let none of his words fall to the ground. In all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and this is a phrase used in Israel all the time, it'd be like saying from, uh, from northern Alaska to the Keys of Miami, from the northern border of our country to the southern border, east to west. So that's what it's saying. Dan, so from the top of Israel to the bottom of Israel, God was with Samuel. And he didn't let his words fall to the ground. They just continued to have impact. And he knew that Samuel was, had been established as a prophet of the Lord. God just continues to be with him in the ups and the downs, in the north and the south. Then the Lord again appeared, didn't speak, appeared. He's got these regular occurrences with the God, the Theophanies, Jesus, the word of the Lord, appearing to him regularly. This guy knows how to walk with God, not just no Bible trivia. He knows how to walk with God not just kind of know stuff. For the Lord, here's the phrase again. So notice he appeared. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel and Shiloh by, and here's that phrase I mentioned last week, the word of the Lord. It's how God revealed. It's how God appeared. Until you learn how to not just talk about a relationship with God, but have a relationship with God, you're not going to be able to have ears that hear very well because it's grace that gives you the secret of how you're able to have tingling ears. Oh, I'm scared. What would happen? Thank goodness Jesus took the judgment of God for me. Glory, God, I do have a tendency to ignore and not not restrain rebellion in my life. God, thank you that you died for it. Tell me one more thing in my heart that you may have died for that I need to, to address and agree with you on. I think that's why our key takeaway out of the grace is this, to practice surrender. And I'm actually going to take three phrases from this text when we talk about Surrender. What if this week, this was the main attitude you and I had toward God? Let God do what seems good to him. Remember he said, speak, your servant speaks. God, I'm here to serve you. What seems good to you? Look what Eli said. Let him, God, do what seems good to him. You know what? If I need to be judged, if I need to be an example of what happens when you disobey God enough that you remove your hand protection... You know what? At least I can glorify God in my my last hours. The Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Practicing surrender is about this. Saying, God, I don't like my circumstances, if you're in that particular case. But God, I want to practice surrender. I'm here to serve you in these circumstances. How can I be your servant in this circumstance? God, what's happening to me does not seem good to me. 
but I'm going to trust that you're sovereign. And whatever you're putting me through, it's already gone through the hands of a sovereign God. And I'm going to say, even if I don't like it, if this is what seems good to you, I want to serve you in the midst of it. I was talking to a family about a month ago at our church. This uh, woman I was talking with, she talked about her father-in-law who just got cancer. And just the devastation of that and all the fears that that was bringing up. She said, but my father-in-law just uh, approaches in such an amazing way. It's inspiring us. I go, tell me about that. She said, he found he has cancer. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to serve God through my cancer treatments right now. I'm hoping for full healing, but I'm going to surrender to God using me in these circumstances. So he's going to the cancer, going to get his, his therapy done or going to get radiation done. And he's looking for other people he can give hope to and encouragement to and affirmation to. And I thought, wow, that's practicing surrender. I wish I didn't have cancer, but God, I'm going to serve you while I'm going through it. Let God do what seems good to him. We got a whole group of people down in Belize. Down in Belize, it's like, oh, I'm scared to go on the trip. I want to go down on the trip. Michael Harshak's one of my neighbors. You've heard a little bit of this story, but another piece of that story came because he went down as a doctor who'd never been on a trip like that before several years ago, and he's doing anesthesia, and he's trying to fix the, the cleft palate of uh, Gilberto. If you've heard this part of the story from years ago, the, he had this reaction to the anesthesia, and there wasn't another anesthesia, the thing that would help him. He was going to die right there, and Michael was just panicked. This kid is going to die in front of him. He's praying and praying and praying. And miraculously, without access to the medicine he needed to reverse this anesthesia, he, he lived that day. And, and because of that, Michael felt like, I, I'm gotta, I feel personally called by God, like Samuel was, to, to be part of this. And he made ways for Gilberto to come here to Cincinnati and to get that cleft palate done with the right kind of medicine that he's not allergic to. He's got a twisted spine, Gilberto does. So he walks sideways, and he's going to have to be here in the States for nine months in a hospital sometime the next couple of years because of the work that, that Michael and his team has done. Telling him just like, I'm called to help this kid. But this week in particular, we've got several people from Horizon have been building a house for Gilberto and his mom. I got to see some video footage of it. I got to see some stuff. I'll try and show it in the next couple of weeks. Uh, John sent it to me. But here's somebody who said, God, I want to surrender. And, and he's telling his team with tears in his eyes yet again this week, how terrified he was that the thing he's supposed to be the best at almost as a child die in front of him. But he felt like that God was calling him to personally take ownership of helping a child who would never have access to these kind of resources get the kind of help he needed. What does it look like for you to practice surrender? Is it going on a mission trip? And you're scared to death? Oh my goodness, I don't know that. Can you ever go on something like that? Is it looking at your current circumstance like cancer and saying, God, how do I serve you in the middle of my cancer? Is it saying, God, I, I want to open up my life. You can put your finger on any aspect of my calendar and tell me, hey, we need to change that. Whatever seems good to you. Are you going to let God take his finger and put it on your checkbook and say, God, you know, I've been coming. I've been growing here at Horizon, but I haven't been giving here at Horizon. I'm open to start small, but to give big. Everything's open, Father. Let it seem good to you. How can I be part of the work you're doing? Are you open to it in service? Boy, God, a lot of people are serving me and serving my family here at the church and in the community. God, whatever seems good to you, where do you want me to spend my calendar to serve your purposes? Imagine a community that didn't live under the fear of God has removed his hand of protection. Wow, my ears are tingling. I don't want that to happen to me. That, we don't want that. That's like a worst case scenario. We want the kind of tingling ears that say, wow, the reverberation of walking in God's grace is how I want to live my life. 
That's what I want for you. The courage to face the truth about yourself because of God's grace. The courage to talk truth to somebody else, but to do it with grace and truth. And also the courage to look in your own life and say, am I really living in the fear of God or the fear of some idol? People's approval, freedom, progress, status, my reputation. All of those things can create a lot of fear of losing it unless you have a greater fear, the fear of God operating in your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful message, powerful reminder of your grace and your goodness. God, we do pray the same thing that uh, Samuel prayed here and Eli prayed here. Let God do what what seems good to him in our life. Maybe you want to pray that before we close here. Just say, God, I invite you to do what seems best to you in my life. God, forgive me for fearing something greater than you. And I invite your Holy Spirit to come and live in me and give me the courage I need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight.